Welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation, and many more. Today's guest is Abhilasha Purvar. Abhilasha is an environmental entrepreneur heading Blue Sky Analytics, which is building a global environmental data stack using geospatial and IoT data sets. Abhilasha graduated with the Masters of Environmental Management from Yale in 2017. She's interested in energy and infrastructure finance, particularly in emerging economies. She's a certified yoga teacher and enjoys acro yoga, hiking, biking, and backpacking. I'm Keithi Manyan, and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Abhilasha. Welcome to the show. I'm going to get started by asking you this. You have such a varied background. How did you get started on your environmental journey? Truth be spoken, like uh, maybe till five, six years ago, for me, environment was just a nice career bet. I was like, oh, the environmental crisis is imminent. So in future, people who are able to manage it will get like better jobs. And that's why I went to like Yale. But along the lines, I started to realize what was the actual scale of it? And I was like, wait a minute, this is not actually about like a nice career opportunity, but this is almost a survival necessity. Maybe like past five years have been most sort of prominent in terms of building a thought process around it. But probably even from like childhood, I think poverty and environment, these two issues for me have been very breathtaking from a really long time. Healthcare is something that obviously bothers me, but Fundamentally, two things, poverty and environment is something I've always been extremely like, why, why can't we solve it? Why do we have to destroy it? Like, I think it's very commonsensical also, because environmental degradation that, especially in India, that in many ways is also very unwanted and unoptimized. It's inefficient. It's not a problem of its own. It's a problem of our own creation. It's just really bad planning and really bad management. As an engineer, you're always looking at like optimization and things and at processes and it's like, why would you even do that in the first place? So probably it's also a little bit of that engineering brain. Before we get down talking about climate change, can you define the challenges of being a woman in the startup world? It's 2020 and I feel that sometimes the status quo for women in tech world has just stayed the same. What needs to change? My brother, who was also my co-founder, we went for an AI startup VC event. So there were like about 30, 40 people in the room. Okay. And majorly men. So this was one of the first events where Shitaj and I went together. After that, when there was a tea place, so we were all having chai. And, and he comes to me and is like, wait a minute, is this like this for you always? I'm like, what do you mean? I am the only person under 30 here and you're the only female here. So I was like, oh, oh I, I didn't notice. <laughs> it's been like this me for like past 10 years of my life. So he's like, don't these men think that there's something wrong with them or with the structure? Like, how can they just be so normal with it? And that was the first time that it hit me that it's not normal, not just for females, but it's also not normal for men. But somehow they have been told that, hey, this is how it is. So they don't feel bad. If you are, let's say, a VC firm and you have three partners and five or six male associates, then each of those members of the team should vocalize that, hey, guys, there's something wrong with ourselves. There's something wrong with our firm. But we don't do that. 
So what needs to change is that when the representations are very skewed and it's a responsibility of every single person, whether you're a man or a woman, you're old or young, you're upper caste or a lower caste, when representation is really skewed, you should speak up. You should be like, hey guys, I think our representation is really skewed. We should make some changes. <laughs> and if all of us started to do that, then you will see a very proactive change. Uh, my last firm where I worked, it was a private equity firm in Connecticut. And I know that my bosses made a lot of serious effort to hire a female. And even when we were hiring my replacement, when I was moving back to India, we had a very strict criteria or make as much effort as possible to hire a female. So we started our process like almost like three months in advance. We processed 30 applications and we got some like good male candidates, but we we're like, no, then it will be all of us in this office will all be male. And that's something fundamentally wrong. If everybody was to speak this strongly, write it on their board, <laughs> that if our office is like that, even like, you know, founding teams, so many founding teams, across India are just boys, like four boys from IIT. And I think the only thing that they don't do is they don't call their female friends and like, hey, bro, would you want to join our startup? You're doing this. Would you want to do it? Because if you started to do that, then you will have like sort of heterogeneous mixed group dynamics, mixed group teams. We simply haven't even recognized and vocalized the problem. How will you even find a solution if you don't speak it out loud? It's sometimes a case of just having diversity as a tick mark against your company's name when you say, okay, we've hired a female candidate. I've seen that often enough and I recognize that for what it is. It's essentially just that. That tick is actually very, very insidious. That tick is really problematic. So all the big tech companies have that tick, right? They have a diversity criteria. So for us as a low, you know, tiny startup, when we try to hire female candidates, it's really difficult because let's say some IIT you pick up, there are 30, 40, 50 females that graduate per class. The ratios are pretty skewed, right? And Facebook and Google and all the big fours, big companies, they have a diversity criteria. So they cherry pick all of those like female candidates. And those female candidates end up going in what I call a low risk, high pay job, which over the next period of your five to 10 years is going to have much lower return than a high risk, low pay job. So now these females go into those jobs and for a startup like ours, and we are trying to hire females who have representation in our company, we have no option. We just don't find female candidates. But then, ironically, it's a pretty sort of negative feedback loop. At a very early stage, we end up hiring boys in high-risk, low-pay jobs. But in 10 years, their growth curve is much higher. That's the same thing with entrepreneurship. If more females were to take risk and be entrepreneurs, then more female will be more wealthy. Because, see, risk-return is a very simple equation. Higher the risk, higher the returns. So if you are graduating from your class and out of my class of 35 females, one more female co-founder from my class of undergrad, right? And if I have to count boys, I can count 30, 40 boys right now <laughs> who are <laughs> doing startups. See, now imagine how the two groups are interacting. For all the guys, they can just pick up the phone and be like, hey, yo, uh, tera term sheet kitne ka tha? Yo, do you have an extra engineer? Man, I'm looking for a co-founder. Do you have a co-founder? But now in the group of girls where very few of us became founders, it's just difficult. I think uh, representation at a true level, not a cursory a tick mark representation, but a true representation will really solve all of these problems. I honestly wish that for my daughter's generation, at least that happens. Okay, I'm going to circle back to 
Blue Sky Analytics. Tell me more about the work that you guys are doing. I think Blue Sky for us started from one very simple thing. We were trying to find simple data around air pollution and air quality and who's polluting and what are the numbers. Some power plants we found out there are near us in Delhi. Like, okay, let's find out what is the pollution from these power plants so that we can make some calculations, right? We only hear instantative news, but we don't get like substantive, like long sequence data. It's all very one story at one point in time. T is equal to T1. That's all we know. Uske aage, uske piche, like, we just don't know anything of that sort. So we wanted to have a more a comprehensive understanding of air quality and air pollution sources. And when we started doing that, we were like, wait, why should we not have the similar data for water quality? Why should a similar data set not exist for like sort of elevation planes of particular city or temperature like heat days or extreme heat days and predictions on those? Uh, these are very basic things like soil quality. Why is there not a simple API on which you can like hit Latin long and you get like soil quality data back? Why is it not happening? I mean, for instance, let's say if you were to go to uh, Facebook or Instagram and hit an API of people of the age of this to this in this city and their preferences. You will get a very extensive data set from them. Really extensive. Really large like advertisement campaigns and God knows on what. So <laughs> what about like the characters and the parameters which make our life possible? Why is there no data set around them? And that was a very simple thought that actually started Blue Sky Analytics. One of our angel founders, so thankful for him for like trusting in us in such early days. Like this is January 2019. We had no clue what we were doing. So essentially what you're building is a blue book for environmental data. And I was like, ooh, that's the best word ever. He's like, cool, I'm going to give you money and go build your blue book for environmental data. And that's how we got started. Wow, it sounds fabulous. One of the things I happened to read is, I think Courts had a report yesterday or today about how pollution has dropped completely because of the lockdown, because of COVID. Have you noticed something like this happen? And I read about it being called a silver lining, or is it something that's going to just go back to normal once hopefully COVID goes away? I mean, there's air in Delhi right now is fabulous. It is in single digits. The day before yesterday, it was one. I moved here in 2018, and from 2018, uh, July till today, I'd never seen a one or even a single digit number. And a uh, day before yesterday, I counted like 30, 35 stars in my balcony. Now, how will it be six months from today, one year from today? It really depends us on all of us as a society, as a community, like the businesses and the directions that we take. And in some ways on entrepreneurs like myself on how we are able to like leverage out this thing and how we are able to like take this COVID narrative and convert it into a climate action narrative. So it is going to be dependent on a lot of these factors. But if I have to be optimistic, then see people have gotten a taste of how it could be an alternative world. There was a very nice article where somebody said that this is the best intervention that climate change uh, people could have run. If a climate scientist wanted to run this intervention for like three months, let's close down the world. Let's see how much carbon emissions fall and pollution falls. He couldn't have, right? He or she couldn't have. So we will know what what is possible and we can imagine that possible and live it and then work towards it. On the negative side though, human beings have a tendency of ignoring and they have a very short memory uh, span. So we might just forget and go back to status quo of like thousand plus air quality and so on and so forth. In this like sort of before COVID, after COVID world, what will be happening and how will things change? 
will really depend on a lot of entrepreneurs, on a lot of capital, people collectively coming together and taking actions and very solid actions to lead it. So for instance, Anshuman and you at Terra.do have done this amazing thing where you're saying there's a human capital is as important as monetary capital to lead change, right? So like, cool, we're going to train and we're going to provide monetary capital. I think there are a lot of funds floating around globally, which are saying that we're going to put a lot of money into climate action. But I don't think they're deploying at the same scale or they're even deploying with the same sort of discipline and imagination. So if they become as active, like for instance, if Sequoia had a climate action portfolio, like so many big companies come out of it, just like we had a dot-com bubble, if we have a climate action bubble, I think then you can really create a lot of change. That's good on that happening. So I read your thoughts on uh, medium on ageism and climate change. Can you elaborate some of what you said for our listeners? (laughs) This is super funny, actually. I realized this when I was doing some demographic study of India. And I was like, wait, average age of India is actually 29 years old. Okay. So that means I am so much more representative of what India is than any member of parliament. (laughs) And that really shook my head. All the people who make decisions are about capital, right? All the partners, Essentially, every billionaire, every trillionaire, everybody making decisions belongs to a completely fundamentally different age group. They're like 50 plus, 60 plus, right? And hence, they're looking at a world from relatively different lens because for them, life is another 30, 40 more years. So 2050 is something which is like, okay, for me, for instance, or for anybody who's like 25 years old, if you run this thought exercise of how old will you be at 2050? And what kind of life would you want to have? And just like other people who are 50 year old today, right? And you're like, wait a minute, but will there be a planet for me to live in 2050? Then all of your equations around actions that you will take, your demand for like economic returns, the construction of constraints that we do, all of it will change. Today in the world, sadly, the decision-making power around most things, policy, capital, even narrative, you guys are having me on this podcast and I'm very glad about it. But if you look at all the newspapers, all the op-eds, it's not people like us. It's not our age group. The age group which is speaking again and again and is setting a narrative is much older. And in some ways, that is the age around climate change. This is true. I mean, having somebody older and also sort of saying, we have built this body of experience and we can quantificate about it is also a good way to shape some of what you might be thinking. I completely agree with you, but let's say there is a histogram of the age and everything, right? I just think it's very skewed. There is much more power narrative decision-making lying with one age group and much less with the other age group as compared to either the representation or the knowledge base. Now, I think that body of experience, we do a very different wrong weightage of it. Maybe 50 years ago, it was probably something correct because you learned things over your existence of your life. There was no way to get so much knowledge from internet wasn't there. You know, you didn't have that many books and everything. So if you were actually 50 year old, you really held a lot of body of knowledge. That has changed fundamentally and very vastly today. A 30-year-old person and a 60-year-old person, even though when we to meet, we do that sort of respect allocation that, you know, you are the boss, you know everything because you're much more richer and powerful. 
but it's not always true uh, younger people have access to internet and if they utilize it properly that gives them way more knowledge about lots and lots of topics than people of much older age at you know with the similar sort of resources so if we start to i think look at each other with much more equality for me and my team also i am the oldest person in my team now so <laughs> you're operating with like 21 year old person 22 year old person but trying to balance out like yes there is a room for experience and whatever we know but there's also a room for absolutely novel thinking you know which comes when you're very like young experience can be burdensome sometimes yeah so this point about having young people thinking differently i think a lot of our podcast guests have mentioned this having youth and, and they cite that as an example all the time where where it's feet on the ground where it's climate strikes where it's a whole bunch of climate activism that young people are doing and when you say young i think they definitely mean teenagers going into their early 20s they don't mean older than that in that sense so having them push for action especially when the older generation hesitant to do that i think that's something great that's happening in the world today definitely though i feel the gen z the teenagers heading into their youth they are very active but one generation that for me is almost stuck and hasn't found its voice or its role is the millennials so like obviously boomers are representative of a lot of our leaders are the deniers or you know some of them are also supportive al gore has been doing what he's been doing for so many years so some of them are supportive but that's their generation let's summarize greater into the gen z the millennials should be the one who are leading action right who should be doing enterprise and talking about it that generation hasn't really found its voice or place or anything narrative as of now hopefully you know in next 2 3 years that generation can come together and i mean millennials is a very vast generation it is actually 1982 or 85 born to 2005 born so all of us professionals today in the world are millennials and we had this very fun hypothesis let's say you're a marketing person somewhere or you're a communications person in some some place right you're working at pepsi you're doing marketing for them you know you're really happy with your job you're getting paid insane amount of money and you wake up one day and you're like i'm going to do exactly same thing that i'm doing same communications marketing branding strategy but i'm going to do that for climate action i will do it for zero waste company or something just imagine the amount of change that could lead just like with the esg and with disinvestment we talk about not holding dirty stocks what if people stop doing dirty jobs <laughs> yeah people required to be bold in the decisions to say okay i'm going to make that change so that the next generation or or the generation after it is actually going to benefit no right now we fancify people on high income it's like bro you make a lot of money so you're so cool you've made it in life right instead of that if we started and in some sense we look down on people who don't make a lot of money in our society we do that let's say if you graduated 10 years ago and if you're making certain x amount of money which is much lesser than your peers average then that person is sort of deemed relatively unsuccessful or whatever right there in the society if you've gone to a great school you get more respect allocation what if you were cool if you were doing environmentalism and if you were uncool if you're working for a pepsi what if social structure was like that that you know like if you're working at a oil company and you are contributing to all the carbon emissions then your friends are telling you is like hey man that's not cool it's very simple mindset yeah 
hopefully the message will change in the forthcoming years i wanted to ask you about running and air pollution so i run outdoors myself and there are days when i'm running in hong kong i can literally feel the air is just thick with pollution how do you see tech helping us out to make better choices about outdoor sports or outdoor activities for that matter just like you probably you know i think a lot of athletes are coming to environmentalism much quickly because we spend so much time outdoors and like clean air is a very important factor for us i used to run a lot and i was biking a lot and doing none of it now primarily because of like living in delhi and once you've subjected your lungs to that high cardiac activity you know how important clean air is that's when you're like okay i can make quick calculations on how many micrograms of particles are going into my lungs and what volume of my lungs they must be clogging if i just go for a 1 km run i don't know how much tech can enable outdoor sports except for very like band-aid solutions like masks and all but i feel that outdoor sports combined with tech can enable a lot of climate action like i have a lot of really good hope with most of these like patagonia nike a lot of sports companies have led a lot of climate action globally and have also created this change in preferences consumer preferences with sports becoming more and more cool like nike in the past 5 years has grown in india exponentially I'm, i remember when i went to grad school like in 2015 i left india running was a very niche thing like five people used to run nobody used to buy like so many like nike shoes and everything and now you come back and there's a marathon everywhere there are all these biking things and there's all this yoga and everything so sports has become an actual thing and i think more and more sports become popular and in india especially if sports really pick up then our population is very young the average age is being 29 instead of getting into extremely consumeristic and materialistic lifestyle they might actually end up getting into very sportsy lifestyle and one thing about many athletes is that they're fairly anti materialistic they're spending all of their time like eating dirt on the playgrounds and that could lead to a lot of climate action because fundamentally like the choice to buy an extra t-shirt or the choice to buy a expensive car or a watch or even like buying a packet of lace chips these are the things that accumulate on a day to day basis and harm the environment instead if you were wearing your shoes and nike and all have really nice initiatives of making shoes out of recycled plastic and you were just running and like having a healthy lifestyle then you'd have much lower carbon footprint so can tech enable people to play sports better especially with bad environment i don't think so but i think both tech community and uh, sports communities sports brands coming together and focusing on climate action that can really lead to magic i wish for more magic to spread then <laughs> so one of the thing is about india having some of the world's most polluted cities and we see this statistic being rolled out every other day what role do you think politics and policy have to play in this that's where ageism comes <laughs> see <laughs> right. so if i look our current environment minister is 69 years old okay he neither runs he neither plays any sports he doesn't fundamentally care about a lot of these things right that's where not thinking of an issue to be big and important enough comes with the level of learning that happens he must have gone to like undergrad in 1970s so you can only imagine certain type of industries one of the constant thing that you hear from the government if they're not like denying that air pollution is a health hazard is that but 
see we need electricity we need economic development so how will you do all of that without air pollution so that happens when you you really went to undergrad in 1970s and uh, learned that coal power plants are the only way of making electricity that's where politics and policy and lack of innovation lack of imagination lack of really entrepreneurial people in these roles so every problem can be fundamentally solved and this is very mathematics like je preparation 101 you have a problem you have certain constraints and you have to find solutions theek hai constraints hote hain that is the beauty of solving a problem with the constraints if you remove constraints and then you are solving problem so what are we, what are you really solving so yes economic development is a constraint environmental air pollution is a problem now go and solve it so within the public policy and the politics of it one major problem is they don't really think it's important second one is that there's a real lack of coordination amongst all of the agencies like the delhi government and punjab government and haryana government none of them talk to each other three actually they're fairly slow that's one thing that i have to give to the government officials and the leaders the pace at which they move like they should really come and visit a startup and how we function their four months is equal to our one month in india we also are very subject or culprit to this expert mentality that we are going to find experts to solve these problems and then have 20 experts in the room to talk about certain problems instead you can actually really source out solutions from very like sort of hacky people effectively so there is not that much trust system wherein we try to work closely with the government but things move at a beautiful pace <laughs> and that way like internally we had a target of reducing air pollution by 2023 but frankly it will be 2025 because governments have to give more attention to these problems and also like hire better people their agencies in many ways are run by people who don't really have the right set of skills and who have a very outdated set of skills so unless you're hiring better people to run your agencies run your pollution control boards you will get into the same problems again and again unless you're hiring better people to be your ministers who had pertaining education about pertaining topics you will need experts you will take much more time because that skill in that subject matter right let's say of an environmental management graduate student was in one of these like powerful roles they would have studied all these things they will solve these things better undervaluing skills of a lot of other people is probably one of the key reason so moving on to esg investing can you unpack that for us and what do you think needs to happen for this to become more mainstream if it hasn't happened already it's going to become very mainstream by itself so i'm not worried about that let me unpack what exactly esg is and how it came so it's relatively new phenomena but has been almost floating around globally in all the capital markets for almost a decade which is when we are making an investment we are typically making only from a returns perspective i put in 100 dollars how much am i getting i'm getting 200 dollars 2x return happy this is my irr at the end of the day most of the investment decisions are based on multiple and return these are the two major things right but i think over the past 10 years people started to imagine that hey what if we started to consider some other socio economic factors or environmental factors or governance factors and in many cases what they saw was that firms which were more responsible towards society or environment or governance structures were also giving better returns 
because if you run something properly then you run it properly and you have better outcome mismanagement is mismanagement in whatever aspect it is right and as i mentioned in the starting of our conversation environmentalism for me is about efficiency and is about optimization and it's about not doing mismanagement so that same thing continues for how many firms operate and once that started to give people reasonable returns my grad school had a very important movement around it in 2015-17 when i was in school undergrads led this movement of asking the university to divest from oil i don't know if they divested from oil or not but i think they did from coal that was pretty mind blowing for me it's like wait a minute a 27 billion dollar endowment fund vocally speaking to one particular industry that sorry bro i'm not going to hold your stocks that's very powerful right this is also the reason why a lot of startups or a lot of industries have been able to raise cheap capital if you look at tesla and i am so impressed with what those guys have done has raised the cheapest capital in the world i think the stock i just saw last was trading at like 500 dollars plus so in some ways why is tesla such a expensive stock yes people have very high expectations and believe and trust in them to give ridiculously high future growth but it's also because people actually genuinely want to hold tesla that has proven like over past eight quarters wherein quarter after quarter they were not really shipping that many cars but the stock was not dipping as many other people were expecting the other aspect is the coal industry i think the downfall of the global coal industry especially the american coal industry has been the best example of how esg investing could work and how it could enable so just by market phenomena a lot of capital that was previously going into coal projects started to go into solar projects storage projects and so on which enabled those projects because economics of any item let's say what terra dot do is doing what we do anything you do in climate action in year 1 year 2 year 3 all of it's going to have ridiculously shitty economic returns there'll be all like money losing business but once you get a particular scale that's a fun tipping point wherein it starts to yield really good economic returns so the markets have to just trust a particular idea put in capital till that point where you start to get good returns and that happened in case of coal and solar you took capital from coal you gave capital to solar solar tipped and went to that point where it was giving good returns and the industry boomed like now you can take capital away from let's say plastic or you can take capital away from oil you can give it to electric like vehicles batteries so many ideas that are there and you can accelerate the change that is going to happen right you've talked about esg investing what role do you think tech has played in shaping the climate change narrative globally or in india and do you think it needs to change as much as i see i think tech hasn't really done its fair share of job in responsibility till today it is relatively late in the game as of now probably most that's been done in the climate change narrative has actually been media and the kids and the scientists and in some ways the policy circle tech is just waking up and is like hey we also have a role to do in climate change <laughs> so that way i think tech is quite slow for all its due like i think google and amazon because of the efficiency that they bring into things they haven't led to a lot of other inefficiencies but in general i think they can do way better job than they are doing they all need to hire much better chief sustainability officers mm, that's true yeah 
you've talked a lot about climate action and you've called yourself a climate alarmist, I remember reading. So how bad do you think the current climate crisis is and do you think we passed the tipping point already? 2019 for climate change, people was a really bad year. Like if you are very uh, concerned about the COVID crisis, our entire 2019 was like this. Like I think in the summer, we had the Greenland ice sheet melt, which was fairly bad for us like who follow this intensely and it almost made me very sad and anxious and panicky at a personal level which was like why is rest of the world not seeing these numbers and why is the rest of the world not caring about it as much as I am it's pretty fun being in the climate change circle because you really don't know if your pessimism is worth it or if your optimism is worth it (laughs) then the whole Australian and Amazonian fires I think were really bad. Australia really broke my neck in that way, like emotionally also, because the emissions out of it in just two months uh, period, I think Australian fires emitted as much carbon as 100 countries do in the entire year. Right. And that's a pretty negative feedback loop because when then you're like, wait a minute, this is what climate change people have been saying for like five years that, hey guys, your forest fire incidents will start to increase because you will have less you know, rainfall and you will have high heat, which is just like, you know, recipe for a fire to start and they will become much more intense. So Australia in that way was the first like sort of, you know, showcase. And then if you start to do some simulations and whatever you have studied, like, wait, what if this happens in Siberia? What if this happens with permafrost? Then all of those calculations and you're like, wait a minute, world is ending in 2035. I hate the word climate alarmism as much as it is the only word I, word I think that represents me. Now, especially with the whole COVID crisis, I feel a lot of sympathy for the medical professionals who were raising their horns and beating their chest in early January and early February that, hey, guys, this is serious. Can you please lock down your airports? Can you please start social distancing? And nobody listened to them. People were like, you don't know what you're talking about. So in some ways, alarmism, for lack of any better word, that's how you would have to describe me. I feel that if we all came together, we can really lead to a lot of change and we can really save the planet, quote-unquote, as they say. There will be a lot of disaster. There will be a lot more deaths, for sure. I did a lot of like climate change simulations. I had put a number, like, okay, one million will die, this many will die. You have put down the number. Let's try to minimize these numbers. With this COVID crisis, when people actually started to die, right, I wrote to this friend of mine that I wasn't emotionally prepared for this kind of havoc. So... What will happen with climate change? As much as I'm mentally prepared, I'm not sure if I'm emotionally prepared for that. Right now, 2020 is the year for all of us to really make decisions on it. Because if we start now, it's not too late. But if we go back after this COVID crisis, go back to like, you know, just the way the things were, don't do anything. And then suddenly it's 2025 and I'm again on a podcast with you and you're telling me that, hey, Abhilash, have we passed the tipping point? I will say, yeah, we have passed the tipping point. So I think 2020 is the most important year. This is the start of the decade. And if in this decade, we just, a lot of us, and it's not going to be just one or two entrepreneurs. This is not a single hero game. This is going to need like hundreds, 200, 500 people, um, journalists, investing people, finance people, marketing people, branding people, movie stars. Movie stars are a very big agent of change. So once you have those 100, 200 climate action leader, I hate the word climate change now because it's so negative. So that's why I've coined this term climate action. Once you find enough leaders in that category, then probably in 2025, we can lead to a place which is not that grim. 
you have also answered my last question. I was going to ask you, how do we make environmentalism cool? And I think you've hit the nail there where you you said it all. You said exactly what I wanted to ask, actually. Right now, when we go and talk about environmentalism, since we moved back in 2018 and we started Blue Sky Analytics, everybody was pushing us into this like non-profit category. Recently, somebody called me, it's like, you know, you're doing such a good work. And like people text you, it's like, how can I contribute? How can I make a difference? You know, I can do anything, like I can help. So you want to join us? You want to take a job with us? No, no, I don't want to take a job. But, you know, I would love to help you guys. It's like, sorry, thank you. We don't need your help. So we don't really take climate change seriously. We just think of climate change as doing our bit. Whatever we are doing, lifestyle, 95%. One person, you know, we'll donate one penny and that's climate change and that's our bit. So as a founder, I've started to hate those messages now that I get people texting like you're doing really cool work we would like to help you are you looking for a job are you looking to make an investment no 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 we would like to volunteer so taking this as seriously right when you let's say apply to a google or let's say you're talking to somebody in google or in some in amazon or any other large company solving really critical problems whether it's in logistics whether it's in tech a problem of like zoom like communications right engineers who are solving those problems when same set of engineers think that climate change is worthy enough problem to solve and it's interesting like search engine optimization so many people are working to make let's say gmail load one second faster if that many people started to work to go one degree less hotter (laughs) that will lead to real change yeah I, i totally agree with that i think it's just a thought process it's about choices it's about understanding the choices you make today are going to have an impact tomorrow. Thanks so much for all your fabulous answers, Abhilasha. It's been a pleasure having you here. And thanks again. Thanks so much, Kirti.